Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 65, The Third Crusade. This week, after 15 episodes, we will finally leave the Emperor Barbarossa behind. Though, it's almost impossible to ever get rid of him. No other medieval ruler is still so present in the national psyche, not as the man he was, but as the myth he was turned into. So, today we say goodbye to the man, and next time we'll take a look at the myth. Now, quick apology. I was supposed to put up a page for this last episode with transcripts, maps and images. This has unfortunately not yet happened. The same goes for many other things I wanted to do, but have not. This missing page, as well as the one accompanying this episode, should be up shortly after the release, as usual under History of the Germans slash 65-2. But before we start, as always, a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot to James and the extraordinarily generous Michael who've already signed up. As we heard last week, Barbarossa is going on crusade. Not just as another ruler, but as the emperor to fulfill the last and final act of his career, free Jerusalem from the yoke of Saladin, and possibly the last and final act that brings about a thousand years of bliss by putting down his crown in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, fulfilling an ancient prophecy. This all sounds a bit bonkers, and probably is, but Despite its spiritual objectives, Barbarossa went about organizing this crusade with all his usual rationality and thoroughness. It was not his first rodeo. Barbarossa had been on crusade before, 30 years earlier in that ill-fated trip with his uncle, King Conrad III, and he remembered the lessons learned. The first and most crucial one was that participation of unarmed and poor pilgrims had to be avoided at all costs. These men and women had slowed down the progress through the Balkans, had consumed much of the scarce water and food, and were responsible for the majority of the altercations with the local populace. And, most crucially, they were totally useless on the battlefield. He did get support in his attempt to hold back the pilgrims from the Pope himself, who ordered that only well-equipped and well-funded soldiers should get the absolution that comes with the crusade. The second crucial point was discipline. Conrad found himself in all sorts of difficulties with local potentates because order in the army was difficult to enforce. Barbarossa was not willing to allow any distractions of that kind. He instated draconian punishments for stealing and plundering, ranging from cutting off hands to execution. And he was not shy in following through. He even executed noblemen who had not stuck by the rules. In terms of route, there are now two well-established ways to get to the Holy Land. One is via Italy. Crusaders would gather at one of the great maritime republics, Genoa, Pisa or Venice, and board huge galleys that could take them and their horses and armor across to the Crusader harbors in Acre, Tyre or Tripoli. These journeys were perilous and very, very expensive, but much quicker. They could also rely on a fully operational supply chain that offered armor, weapons and horses from their warehouses in Italy, 
the harbours along the route and in the Holy Land itself. The great republics were even able to provide financing, either as credit or by money transfer from back home. The costs were initially very high because the galleys returned mostly empty. The few crusaders who survived long enough to book a return passage would leave their horses behind and only bring souvenirs along. One popular souvenir was earth from the Mount Golgotha, which is assumed to be where the final judgment would start, and hence those buried there would be the first to be sent to paradise. The Campo Santo in Pisa was covered with earth of Golgotha, brought back on crusader galleys, because, in the usual one-upmanship of Italian communes, the Pisans wanted to be the first through the gate. This route was however not the one that Barbarossa chose. He decided to take the longer and even more dangerous land route through Hungary, Byzantium and Turkish Anatolia. Why he did that is not recorded. It may be for economic reasons, by now Germany had already fallen behind France and England in terms of wealth. It could be because he wanted to avoid getting into competition with Richard Lionheart and Philippe Auguste of France over the scarce shipping capacity. Or he may have taken advice from his cousin, Henry the Lion, who had been to Jerusalem in 1172 and had nearly drowned twice on a ship on the way down so that he chose the land route on his way back. Barbarossa set the date for departure for May 11, 1189. He left his realm in reasonable order. His son, King Henry VI, was 24, which made him an old hand as a medieval ruler. He had run several military campaigns and had been involved in all his father's major decisions over the last decade. As for Henry the Lion, despite the former reconciliation between him and his adversaries in Saxony, staying in Germany was not an option. Henry was given the choice of joining the crusade or going into exile in England for the duration. He chose England. The army that left Regensburg in the early summer of 1189 was one of the largest and best equipped Barbarossa had ever commanded. About 3,000 knights and 12,000 well-armed foot soldiers. His son, Frederick VI, Duke of Swabia, was the second in command. As per normal, a gaggle of bishops came along, though no archbishop. Amongst temporal lords, the Duke of Bohemia, Duke Berthold of Andex, the Markgraf of Baden and another roughly 30 counts and 25 noble knights had joined. The other group that will play an important role in the crusade, and even more so in later Hohenstaufen history, were the Ministeriales. Just a recap, a Ministeriale is a serf knight. He is not a free man, but bound to his masters by a servile relationship, unable to own land outright and to shift allegiance. Ministeriales nevertheless receive the same military training as knights and are given fiefs to sustain them. The Ministeriales have been around for more than a hundred years by now and rules have softened. Many Ministeriales were able to pass their positions on to their sons. These sons then often marry into the aristocracy or daughters of other Ministeriales, creating over time a dynastic complex that rival free knights and sometimes counts. And they rise to prominence at court. Two of those, Heinrich von Calden and Markwart von Anweiler, serve in imperial court roles and are close advisers. They will later be significant supporters of his son, Henry VI. The first leg of the journey involved crossing Hungary, and that went very smoothly. King Bela of Hungary had offered to support the crusaders with food, drink and transport. 
and so the emperor, his entourage and the baggage train travelled in all comfort on a boat along the Danube whilst the army followed along on foot. Once they reached Belgrade, the crusaders entered Byzantine territory. From here, the journey had to continue on foot. Though the Danube flows down to the Black Sea, shipping ends beyond Belgrade because of something called the Iron Gates, a section of fast-flowing canyons that were navigable for medieval vessels. King Bela took his leave and his boats home. Provisions were loaded onto carts and the host followed the smaller Great Morava River. The Byzantine governor of the province greeted the emperor and his magnates with all due honours. Barbarossa had agreed free passage with the Byzantine Empire a year earlier, and John Ducas, one of the leading figures at court in Constantinople, had sworn to provide supplies, guides and safety. Well, when he got to the border, Barbarossa had expected to find a letter from the Emperor Isaac II Angelos, welcoming him to his lands, similar to the letter Conrad III had received at that point in 1147. But there was no letter. There was also no escort. There were no guides. The Basileus, he was told, was on campaign in Asia Minor, and hence not yet aware of his coming, which explains the lack of letter of welcome. Now, what had happened in the meantime? Before we go into the events of 1189, we have to go back to 1180. The Emperor Manuel, the one who had featured so regularly in previous episodes, had died, aged 61, after 37 years on the throne. His reign was already one of near-constant crises as Byzantium had to fight against Hungarians and Serbs on the Balkans, had fallen out with the maritime republics, in particular Venice, and tried to wrestle Anatolia back from the Turks and the Crusaders. The great miracle of his reign was that it held together for so long. It was only in 1176 that he suffered a serious defeat at Miriokephalon against the Turks under Kilijaslan II. Now, upon his death, his wife, Maria of Antioch, reigned as regent for her 12-year-old son, Alexius II Komnenos. Maria was not only renowned for her beauty, but she was also the daughter of a crusader and supported the Italian merchants in Constantinople. She faced opposition, led by her stepdaughter, also Maria, and Manuel's cousin, Andronicus Komnenos, who preferred a much harsher treatment of the Latins. The conflict exploded onto the streets and resulted in a massacre of the Pisan and Genoese merchants. So Maria of Antioch was toppled. The rebels made Alexis II sign his mother's death warrant before the boy himself suddenly disappeared. Andronicus tried to bring order to the fraying empire, but his regime was considered very harsh. In particular, the aristocrats he tried to bring in line opposed him. His regime grew increasingly violent, and as chaos set in, King William II of Sicily invaded Greece. William II took Durazza, today's Dores in Albania, and sacked Thessaloniki. And when he mustered to march his troops towards Constantinople, the population revolted and placed Isaac II Angelos on the throne. Andronicus was handed to the mob who tortured him for three days before he was hung by his feet in the Hippodrome. Isaac's regime was initially more stable than Andronicus. He raised an army and sent William II of Sicily packing in 1186. He pacified the borders through alliances. He himself married the daughter of the King of Hungary, one of Byzantine's greatest foes, and his niece was given to the leader of the Serbs who had wriggled out of imperial overlordship and expanded. But by 1189, when Barbarossa demanded free passage, things had turned for the worse. 
the Bulgarians had rebelled against higher taxes and established what is now called the Second Bulgarian Empire. The general Isaac had sent to put down the revolt had turned his weapons against his master and had marched against Constantinople. The Serbs had also established a pretty much autonomous state. So for all intents and purposes, the hold of the Byzantine Empire on the Balkans was fragile, which also meant they weren't actually able to offer free passage, supplies, guides and escorts. Before it set off, Barbarossa had sent envoys to Isaac II Angelos to confirm the right to free passage and access to supplies through regular markets. He had assured him again of his peaceful intentions and his sole desire to reach Jerusalem. However, Isaac II did not get this warm and cozy feeling. Barbarossa was a crusader, and given previous experiences, that meant he was a threat. He was also in a close marriage alliance with William of Sicily, who had just tried to take Constantinople. The empire was, furthermore, allied with Pisa and Genoa, whose citizens had only recently had their limb torn apart by the mob in the capital. And Isaac might even have heard about the age-old diplomatic links to the Seljuk Turks in the south. To say the least, Isaac did not like the idea of a massive Latin army going through his territory. He knew that he did not have the resources to stop Barbarossa, and that his other ally, the King of Hungary, would not be willing to prevent a crusade. So he went out for the full Monty. He made an alliance with Saladin. Yes, Saladin, the man who had taken Jerusalem from the Christians. Isaac allowed public prayers to be said for the Abbasid Caliph in the Mosque of Constantinople. But where he went completely overboard was when Isaac imprisoned Barbarossa's envoys, the Bishop of Münster and the Count of Nassau, who had come to confirm free passage. The two envoys had their possessions taken and those possessions have then been handed over to Saladin's representatives. And Saladin's representatives then taunted the helpless Germans. Now Barbarossa, up on the Byzantine border, did not know what had happened to his emissaries. But the absence of letters from them made him suspicious. And that suspicion grew as he received false intelligence from the governor's aides. Now, after a week of waiting for a more helpful response, the army set off downwards towards Sofia. What awaited them was the so-called Forest of the Bulgars, which is to confuse everyone actually in Serbia. The journey was perilous and the army was constantly attacked by bandits. They finally arrived in Nish, formerly a center of Byzantine power, but now half destroyed after it had been taken over by the Serbs. The Serbs had become a semi-independent polity under their leader Stefan Nemanja. And so the Serbs gave Barbarossa a splendid reception. They offered the crusaders wine, flour, sheep and cattle, as well as six extremely useful seals to take along from here. Beyond how to maintain aquatic animals, they also offered him an alliance that would encompass the recently independent empire of the Bulgars. All they asked for was that the emperor would enfief them with the lands they already held. Tempting as that may have been, Barbarossa refused. Awarding their lands to the rebels would have meant war with Constantinople. His objective was, however, Jerusalem, and he did not want to make the crusade dependent upon being able to overturn the regime of Isaac. The other people present in Nish were a delegation from Isaac who saw the emperor drinking and joking with the Serb rulers and, 
though Barbarossa assured them he would not grant them what they wanted, made them feel uneasy. They believed that some sort of under-the-table arrangement had been made to the detriment of Emperor Isaac II, who quite frankly hadn't expected anything less. The level of mutual suspicion deepened when the Byzantines gathered troops on the passes leading to Sofia, while the Germans were now given Serbian escorts to protect them against the bandits. Sometimes the bandits got through and sometimes the bandits got caught. Bishop Diepold of Passau captured 24 attackers and had them dragged into the camp by the tails of their horses. There, the attackers admitted to be in the pay of the Byzantine Emperor, and were hanged by their feet like wolves, as the chronicler said. When they finally got to Sofia and the promised great reception by senior Byzantine nobles and the abundance of supplies weren't there. The city was almost empty. Its citizens had fled. There was no food. At that point, it's clear that Emperor Isaac wanted them dead. Reports came back that the bodies of crusaders who had died and had been buried in the forest of the Bulgars had been dug up and hung from the trees along the road. It nearly came to a battle with regular Byzantine troops at a pass called the Trajan's Gate. 500 Byzantines had fortified the position and awaited the army. However, as they saw the size of the crusader throng, they fled leaving the road open to Philippopolis, modern-day Plovdiv in Bulgaria. Again, like in Sofia, the city is empty of inhabitants. But there is some food. Envoys from Isaac II arrive with a letter for the emperor. This splendid letter, written on gold on purple paper, contained a long list of complaints against Barbarossa who Isaac accuses of wanting to conquer Constantinople and to make his son Frederick emperor. And his dealings with the Serbs he thinks are suspicious. Bottom line is that Isaac would only allow the king of the Germans to cross at the Hellespont if he receives hostages of his choosing. It is here at the latest that Barbarossa hears about the treatment of his ambassadors at the court of Isaac. This humiliation of the man travelling under the imperial banner was an insult, not just to Barbarossa and the Empire, but to the Crusade in general, and thereby to the whole of Latin Christendom. Now, in spite of this double insult, Barbarossa retains his cool. He declares that he would not negotiate until his ambassadors are returned to him safe and sound, their losses compensated, and the behaviour explained. Without a valid peace, this is now war. The ban on plundering and murdering of the local population is lifted. The army will spend the next 11 weeks in Philippopolis, devastating Byzantine lands. This is almost as long as it had taken them to get where they are now. By the end, they will control most territory north of Constantinople. But that wasn't why they had come. They really wanted to go to Jerusalem. To get there, you had to cross the Hellespont, and that meant you needed ships. Not only that, you also needed to be sure the army would not be attacked when it was most vulnerable during the crossing. Given how deteriorated the relationship between Isaac and Barbarossa was, there was no way the Germans would go across without some serious assurances, say, some very senior hostages. The French knights under Louis VII had the same problem in 1147, and they had come to the same conclusion. The only way to force the Vasilev was by threatening to take Constantinople. And that is exactly what Barbarossa did, thereby 
proving all of Isaac's suspicions. The war of words escalated once Isaac had sent the envoys, the Bishop of Münster and the Count of Nassau, back to the Emperor. Finally, the court hears from their own mouths how they had been treated. The whole army roars in anger when they hear the imperial representatives were kept in confinement with meagre rations and all their possessions taken from them. The diplomatic exchanges are now bordering on rudeness. Barbarossa calls the Basileus Emir king of the Greeks and points out sarcastically that he would not trust any oath he swears. Isaac responds with equally rude letters. The Patriarch of Constantinople offers absolution to any Greek who kills a crusader. Accusations and counter-accusations run around their respective cultural zones. The Western world hears theories that Isaac II has formed a permanent alliance with Saladin to expel the crusaders for good, has allowed Friday prayers in his capital and will ultimately convert to Islam. Saladin, they say, have had sent the Byzantines 25 tons of poisoned fruit and 50 tons of poisoned flour to kill crusaders. All this fuels the notion of Byzantium as duplicitous people in hock with the Muslims and out to destroy Outremer. Plans are now seriously afoot to take the city of Constantinople itself. Barbarossa writes to his son to hire a fleet of warships from Pisa and Genoa, needed to take the great city on the Bosporus. His army is now regularly engaged in fighting with Byzantine troop contingents, and one encounter could almost be described as a battle. Barbarossa moves his main forces to Adrianople, closer to the Bosporus, where they will stay for another 14 weeks. The Tsar of the Bulgars offer him thousands of archers for a siege of Constantinople. It is not far-fetched to believe that if the Pisan and Genoese fleets had made it to Constantinople, the city would have been taken, not by the Venetians and French in 1204, but by the Pisans, Genoese and Germans in 1189. Can you imagine the horses of St. Mark standing next to the leaning power of Pisa, or even weirder, on the façade of Speyer Cathedral? But that did not happen, because Isaac II finally caved. He wrote to Barbarossa in Adrianople, now calling him the Emperor of Ancient Rome, to say that he would provide ships to cross the Hellespont, and offered him a list of hostages. Barbarossa agrees, but when Isaac makes the agreement public, the mob rejects it, and so it is not signed. At which point Barbarossa's troops move even closer to the city, cutting it off from vital food supplies. Another envoy from Isaac arrives, who now senses that the end is nigh, if he does not give in. Isaac promises everything. Ships to be put under Barbarossa's command. Hostages. A market to buy provisions at fair prices. The Byzantine army being moved four days away from the point of embarkation. Restitution of the possessions of the envoys. Etc. Etc. PP. 500 citizens of Constantinople are made to swear by the agreement before Marquardt von Anweiler. On March 1st, 1190, does the army finally march towards the Hellespont, having lost almost half a year in ultimately unnecessary fighting with Isaac II. Barbarossa's timing is now way off. In his initial plan, he would by now be in Jerusalem, campaigning against the infidels. Instead, by April, they do reach Philadelphia, the last bit of fully Byzantine-controlled territory in Anatolia. From here... It's a march through 400 kilometers of lands devastated and depopulated by perennial war between Turks and Byzantium.
The next waypoint is Iconium, modern Konya, the capital of Kilijarslan II, Sultan of the Turks. Barbarossa had made an agreement with him, too, that allowed for free passage. Kilijarslan was in principle supportive of the Crusaders, as they kept Saladin in check, who he feared may go after him next. So far so good, but what Barbarossa had not realized is that Kilijarslan II had limited control over what happened on the territory he formerly was in charge of. The local Turkmen tribes did pretty much as they liked, and his sons, of which he had many, had wrestled power away from daddy, creating their own little fiefdoms. The nice piece of parchment from Kilijarslan II, guaranteeing protection from attack, was worth precisely nothing. The other problem was that they had lost far too much time. The last thing an army of Northern European wants to do is march through the boiling summer heat of Anatolia. And that is exactly what happened. And not only that, because they were almost constantly under attack, they wore their armor all the time. Food was extremely scarce and knights began eating their horses. As they marched, they went from one place Christians had been defeated to the next. Dorileum, where Conrad III's endeavor had perished, Myriokephalon, where Manuel was defeated, and so on and so on. The roads were treacherous, and horses and provisions fell into cracks and canyons. Whenever they encountered a settlement, the crusaders took revenge by murdering the women and children of their tormentors. Finally, the Seljuk Turks showed their true colors. Near Konya they set themselves up for battle. The crusaders, worn down by their ordeal, dirty, their armor rusty and short of food, water and horses, looked like easy prey. On the eve of the battle, Count Ludwig of Helfenstein declared he had seen St. George in his shimmering coat riding his white horse in the sky before the army in his dreams. That bolstered morale. The German army was lined up in a triangular formation. The top was held by the bishops of Würzburg and Münster, the left flank by Frederick of Swabia and the right flank by the emperor himself. In the center were the foot soldiers, defending the unarmed civilians, the sick and the baggage train. The Turks saw the imperial standard and went straight for it. Frederick sent some of his knights to support his father. Now, since the terrain was for once favorable to the Latins, the knights could fight in their tight formations and launch their thunderous charges. The Turks in light armor had nothing to put against it, and so Against all the odds, the Crusaders defeated the Turks. A few days later, they reached the city of Konya. There they camped in the gardens of the Sultan outside the walls, where there was water and grazing in abundance. The Turkish army lay outside the city in a crescent shape around the Crusader camp. Now the next morning, the Crusader army was divided in two parts. One was to fight the Turkish cavalry outside the walls, whilst the other was to break into the city. That sounds like utter madness, and probably was. Besieging a city whilst being attacked in the rear is a challenge at the best of times, but without siege engines and after 400 kilometers march through heat and constant attacks, it is pretty much hopeless. Barbarossa and his son Frederick prayed before the battle, and then, as they said goodbye, expected never to see each other again. But then luck came to the rescue. Whilst the armies were preparing for battle, 
both sides were still negotiating. And at some point the old sultan came out of the city gates, seemingly willing to hand back a prisoner he had made before. Frederick of Swabia did not quite realize what was going on, apart from the gate being opened and only a small contingent of Turks coming out. He took his half of the army and ran up against the sultan, who then turned tail, leading the crusaders into the city. The usual sacking and pillaging followed. The other half of the army never had to engage the Turks who had encircled them. The next day the crusaders took away a 100,000 marks of silver, provisions to last them for weeks, and 6,000 horses and mules to replace those they had lost en route. The sultan signed a peace deal and provided noble hostages that guaranteed free passage for the remaining leg of the journey in their lands. This was the last battle Barbarossa would ever fight. They left Konya a day later, as the smell of decaying flesh made staying impossible. They rested for a week in a camp a few miles away, repairing their equipments and enjoying the abundance of food and drink. Four days later, they reached the border with Armenia at Laranda. The ruler of Armenia, Leon II, had been in correspondence with Barbarossa for a long time. Leon II would like to be elevated to King of Armenia, an honor only an emperor can bestow. Because the Armenians did not really get on with Byzantium, Barbarossa was Leon II's man. So all was set up for such a coronation. The Bishop of Würzburg had brought the order for a coronation under the Latin rites, and Leo II had offered to become an imperial vassal. And even more surprising, this agreement was actually for real unlike the promises of the Byzantines and Turks. The army was now guided by local scouts towards the Armenian capital, and there were no more attacks. The route led along terraces overlooking the river Salef. It was extremely hot. As there were no longer any concerns about attacks, the strict marching order dissolved. Everyone just slept along in broadly the same direction, desperately looking for shade or any other relief from the heat. On June 10th, the Armenian guides showed Barbarossa and his entourage a path that led down to the river. The path was steep and they had to go on foot. They are now just 8 kilometers from the capital of the ruler of Armenia. What exactly happened on the shore of this river? We will never know. My favorite version is that Barbarossa crossed the river and now in the shade sat down for lunch. He would be down in the presence of his new vassal by the evening and he decided to have a bath, wash off the dust of the long journey. He was 67 years old, had spent his entire life on horseback. He was definitely fitter then than I ever was. He was a good swimmer and he had enjoyed the occasional dunk in the Adriatic with his best friend Otto von Wittelsbach. The water of the Salaf is icy cold and it may be that combination of heat and cold that brought on a sudden heart attack. Or he may have slipped and was dragged along in the water and drowned. When his men realized what had happened, they jumped after him, but he could only drag him out dead. The army is in shock. The emperor who was supposed to go to Jerusalem and bring about a thousand years where Satan would be in chains was dead. The whole endeavor, all the pain and suffering was for naught. More than that, the medieval mind has no notion of coincidence. Everything is preordained. Everything is an act of God. The fact 
that the emperor had not had a good death, had not been able to confess before he died and had not been given the last rites, was a clear indication that the whole enterprise displeased the lord. Almost immediately, the great nobles set off for home. Barbarossa's body was brought to Seleucia and embalmed. The crusaders mourned him for four days. His intestines were removed and buried in the cathedral of Tarsus, home of the Apostle Paul. Duke Frederick took over as leader of what was left of the crusade. They took the body with them to Antioch. There the flesh was cooked off the bones and buried in the cathedral of St. Peter. The bones remained with the crusaders who journeyed to Tyre, seemingly with the idea of burying them later in Jerusalem. As the Third Crusade never took Jerusalem, the bones never got there. Where they ended up, nobody knows. Many believed he was finally buried in the Cathedral of Tyre, or maybe Akon. Wild stories began circulating as early as the 13th century, that he had not died at all, that the mythical Prester John, who dwelt in the Far East, had given him a stone that made him invisible, and he is still walking amongst us. By the 19th century, that tale had turned towards the Kifhauser mountain, 3,400 kilometers north of Tyre, and there he still sleeps under that Villamine monstrosity, only to rise when Germany needs him. Now, the myth of Barbarossa is for next time. It will unfortunately not be next week. I've been on the trot for 22 episodes, and I need a break. So, next episode will be on July 7th. Once we covered the myth, I was thinking of doing a few episodes about Germany in the year 1200. It has been a while since we've taken a look at how people lived, their customs, laws and behaviours. A lot has changed since the year 1000. I hope you like that idea. Now, before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons, who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you this show does not have to start with me endorsing mattresses or meal kits. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it is more likely to be seen by others. Hence, bring in more listeners. Hence, bring in more patrons. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes.